0: Thank you so much. You can be seated. It's really my honor and privilege to be here. Um, I've known Pastor Aaron and Erica for some time, and just I love from the first time I met them. I love their passion for the things of God. I love how they love people. It's kind of old school for a pastor to stand out and shake hands and love people and greet people. Um, when I went to seminary, they didn't, they didn't teach me that in seminary, lo- you know, love people. They're like, the sheep bite, <laughs> you know, like, but uh, it's great to, to have a pastor who loves people and pastors people and cares about you. And I, I remember when they started sharing with us the dream that is now Rise Church um, and it was amazing to hear, but really it was as you listened, it wasn't just their dream. How many of you know God's vision, if we really look at Scripture, it's God's vision, not a person's vision. It comes from God, and then a person articulates it, and then all of you are now a part of that and connecting with it, and uh, we, we help a lot of churches. We believe the local church is the hope for the world, and so we help a lot of churches. I could be a lot of places today, but I'm glad to be at the Pedrotti Event Center in San Antonio with all of you because I love people that have vision and see things by faith. And uh, we help a lot of different churches, but I will tell you, um, this is not normal what you're experiencing. I think last weekend you had 600 people, and God's moving, and it's exciting, and, um, and how many of y'all on the setup team in here? Anybody share on? Okay, those people all came at the first service, all right, but thank God for the setup folks. Can we give the setup folks a round of applause that all this is good setup? And uh, I, I, I tell you, I believe God has great plans for you. We did a leadership meeting in the fall, and our church invested in the future here. I believe God has a place for you, a location, buildings. Thank you to all of you that serve and give and invest. And like I said, you're you're on the inside. This is not normal, what God's doing. Uh, we started Milestone Church 17 years ago in a cafetorium, and it was not this nice, okay? Uh, and so I, I just love people that see things. Again, the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight, and so you you guys are the faith people. Uh, you're seeing by faith what God has planned uh, for this church, and um, and there'll be people come here in the future, come hopefully not here, but to a building somewhere. Come on, everybody, believe with me. But uh, there'll be people that'll come to Rise Church because it's more than a building, and they'll they'll be able to see it. But you're the pioneers that see it by faith, and uh, we still have the majority. We started our church with 32 people that moved from West Texas to Dallas, Fort Worth. Majority of those people are still with us, and what a joy those people have. As we see last weekend, we had like 50 or 60 people baptized. And what what joy they have that they were investing in a part of what what God would do later. And so I just want to say, you got great pastors. We believe in them. We're excited. But I, I will tell you, a great church is made up more than just the leadership. It's made up of people like you who invest and serve. And so thank you for what you do. Um, I'm excited that you guys have been going through the book, Who Am I?, um, our church was really impacted by it, and I was impacted by it, obviously, before writing it. Um, over a four- or five-year period, um, I began to recognize uh, what God was, was doing, not only in my own life, but how central this question was, Okay, how central it is. I've been pastoring for over 25 years. Um, I went to college. I'm from uh, Texas, grew up northeast Texas, went to college just up north of here in Waco at Baylor University. If you've never been there, it's Jerusalem on the Brazos. God's presence <laughs> dwells there in tangible form. Hallelujah. Um, and uh, so I, I went there and then began pastoring a church just north of there at 21 years old. I was the youth pastor. The pastor decided to leave, and they uh, asked me to be the pastor, and And uh, we had people in the church that walked the earth with Moses at the time he was on the earth. And uh, I was 21, and they were like, I don't think we can follow you. I thought, I don't think I would follow me. Uh, So that's all I've ever done is build the church, been a local church pastor. And I have to tell you, this question is so central after years of working with people. Um, It's one of the age-old questions of life, who am I? It's the question you ask. A few things I've learned about it is we don't really like to admit that we're trying to answer that question, It's like we want to make it public, you know? You don't want to go to work this week and be like, what'd you do this weekend? I just kind of sat around and was wondering who I am, you know? You don't don't really want to tell people that you're struggling with it. Sometimes you don't always know you're struggling with it, but a lot of the things that affect your life are coming out of how you answer this question. What am I here for? What's my purpose? And who am I? It's the age-old question of life. Another thing that I found about it, uh, is that, again, we need a safe place to ask it, but you, you don't ask that question and answer it once, and then you never ask it again. You, you, you kind of hit it at different transitions and phases and circumstances in life. You know, It's kind of like now in this new reality, who am I? I kind of knew who I was over here, but, but now I, I don't know. And, and so um, I'd like to show you a little picture of my family. I know I've, I've worked through... The who am I questions at all different phases of life. As I said, I was a 21-year-old pastor. Have my beautiful wife here on the front row. We've been married for 25 years this year, and uh, and so there's my kiddos, my daughter there. She's a sophomore at Baylor on the right, Hannah Grace, um, and then uh, over there to the left is my son. He's studying has a ministry call, and he's a freshman at ORU. And then my middle daughter, there's a freshman, and the baby there, I'll tell you a little story about her at the end of the message, Laney Kate. Her name means bright light. She's our bright light. So my daughter, there's about to be 20, so I have them from 20 to 9 years old. Somebody say pray for him, Lord Jesus. God <laughs> bless him. Building a church is child's play as compared to raising this group right here, um, and so I've, I've found that when you phase through life, you you ask the who am I question. Moms have the who am I question, right? Not 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 relegating. Only ladies to the mom role. We have some successful ladies in business in our church, and so there's a lot of things. Moms are beasts. Moms get it done. Moms can do uh, amazing different things, but there's a lot of pressure on moms today. There's more pressure than there used to be you got to raise prodigy kids, you got to have all the right look, you got to get everything done, you've got to have them all, you know, in every type of activity, and they've got to be able to, you know, basically be uh, ready for college to, to just conquer the world, and there's all kinds of pressure on moms today, and then, of course, now you have the viewing from the outside with social media, so you've got to get the perfect Magnolia scone there with the light coming through the window, <laughs> oh, take a photo, you know, and then there's all the different comparison to the people uh, around you, and it's like, look. At her, you know, look where she's vacationing. Oh, and she's lost fifteen pounds. Oh, isn't that good? You know, and it's kind of like there's just kind of a nagging of, am I am I messing these people up? Am I am I am I doing it right? There's there's all there's 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 pressure. The who am I question? Dads, uh, they don't like to admit it, but they're asking it. Okay, I, I've got to get through these different career transitions. I'm trying to hit my retirement number. I'm trying to check this off my bucket list. You come in a church like this. And then you hear, you're supposed to be a spiritual leader in your home. A lot of dads, they won't admit it, but in years of doing development groups and discipleship groups groups with men, one of my visions is to help them win in life. And so I work with men, and then they're real, they're, when they're really honest, when you get them in a setting, they're like, I'm a little intimidated by the Bible. I'm intimidated to know how to really be a spiritual leader in my home. I know how to get the trophy. I know how to close the deal, but I don't really know. I know how to get my kids... You know, in all the specialized sports, and we do the travel ball and all those kind of things, and I can kind of get out there in that, but I don't really know how to set a spiritual tone in my home. So they ask the who am I question can I live up to that? Young adults have it today, a lot of pressure on young adults. Lot of pressure to achieve at an early age, and you know it's like, and then you know if you're single and you're a young adult, it's like I've been a bridesmaid in like five weddings. When's it my time? You know, um, there's a lot of pressure on kids today. I have in the book some chapters on working with kids and children. I think it's an area people are looking for a lot of help for a lot of help today, because our world is different. Our world is different. Technology, globalization, our world has changed. There's more pressure on children today than ever before. They're asking the who am I question. Uh, Teenagers. I went to our local high school, and when I was writing the book, I have a chapter in there on teenagers. And uh, if 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 your kids are struggling, you're struggling. There's no pain like kid pain, for those of you that are parents. No pain. And I... Just said, I want to talk to teenagers today. I want to hear from them. I want to hear what's going on in their lives. I'm going to tell you, there's a problem. One of the number one leading causes of death in the world today among teenagers is suicide. It's, It's more rampant than we realize. So I went to our high school, got the high school library, invited the teenagers in there, and just asked them one question Tell me about your pressures. And by just three or four minutes into the conversation, I was literally emotional and crying, listening to them. And and there's pressures from without. Again, I hate to make everything about this, but we didn't grow up with one of these, most of us. You know, when when your friends didn't like you, you left them at school. Now you bring them to your bedroom all night long. So they got pressures they have an inordinate amount of pressure. We would never put it on them as parents, but, but we have more pressure today to achieve earlier. I mean, kids graduate from high school, they're basically done with their first couple years of college. I mean, AP this, AP, there's just, there's just pressure. It's greater pressure. So there's so much on them. And I really asked them, I said, where's this pressure coming from? And a lot of times they said it's pressure we're putting on ourselves. We, we, we have pressure on ourselves. Who am I? Some of you are empty nesters, you know, maybe you got all your kids raised, and listen, that's, that's a shout hallelujah, you know. And if they're off the payroll, it's like, man, I just became rich. Come on, y'all know what I'm saying. And then they try to move back in, but, you know, that's not going to work, you know what I'm saying. Um, and so you kind of think, man, I thought I knew who I was, but then you change transition, kids move out, now you find yourself asking, who am I again, and what's my purpose, and what's going on? Let me tell you, for those of you in that bracket in this church, then I want to tell you, this church needs you. You know, there's a lot of young people that need a mentor. They need a, a, a spiritual relationship, father, mother, that you can invest and you could really help them with some of the mistakes you made. And uh, you can have a huge impact in this thing that you heard your pastor talk about, spiritual family. You've been looking at this who am I question in multiple different places and multiple different arenas. By the way, the good news is in my study... The good news is, is I found that the people of this Bible were asking the who am I question. Peter, Jesus said, who do, you, who do they say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And then Jesus said, you are Peter. Upon this rock I'll build my church. Examples like that, Peter, David, King David, who am I that I am mind, that you are mindful of me? What I love is we don't have a sanitized version of the Bible, and we have the real life stories. So part of this journey through the Who Am I is really learning the Bible. The real Bible and learning the real story and the circumstances going on. And so you've been looking at it at multiple places this weekend. We want to look at it in this area. We're going to look at a character named Solomon. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an Old Testament book. It's in the kind of wisdom section of the Bible. And it's a story about this guy named Solomon. And uh, we're going to get to him in just a second. By the way, we're going to look at this thought. Now, this is the thought that the average person has, and that is, who am I when I don't feel happy? Who am I when I don't feel happy? Now, some of you, again, you've been around church, been around the Bible, and you're immediately struggling with, like, is that even legal to ask that question? You might think, well, maybe this is just going to be kind of a feel-good kind of self-help message. No, no, no. The word happy, number one, is the average person is going to use that terminology when they're speaking of fulfillment, contentment. You know, as I said earlier, you're only as happy as your happiest kid. But for those of us that may let a little religious spirit jump on us and be like, God doesn't care about our happiness, He cares about our holiness. (laughs) Come on now, I'm picking on you a little bit. Jesus, in his most famous message in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, it's his longest message, his longest discourse. He used the word blessed. In fact, in one section of it, he says, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. The word blessed there is the word markarios, and it literally is best translated in our modern vernacular happiness. There is happiness in the life of the person, he says here in this great teaching of multiple areas, he says there's happiness in the life of the person who is humble. So if you're going to deal with this and you could expand it, now I realize the Bible speaks of joy. The Bible speaks of a deeper contentment. The Bible speaks of fulfillment. We can expand it to the biblical understanding. And yes, in our modern culture, when we use the word happy, we're talking about a lot of times external things and circumstances, and Solomon's going to help us with that. It, it seems a little fleeting for us. It seems kind of like it's here today, gone tomorrow, and so the way in which we're pursuing happiness is eluding the modern American person. In fact, in the most recent Harris poll, only 33% of people polled say, I am truly happy. I am content. I find good well-being in my soul. And so at some level, it's eluding us. Another idea and thought is it's hard to be happy when you're hurting, and when you live life long enough, you're going to have pain, you're going to have challenges, you're going to have circumstances, you're going to have transitions, and you're going to have change. How does the book of Ecclesiastes, you can leave this weekend and have some understanding of a Bible book, okay? It's about this character named Solomon, and it is a book of wisdom. The word Ecclesiastes means teacher, so it's a book that teaches us about life. It's about this guy named Solomon, you may or may not know him, but he's the son of King David, one of the most prosperous kings in Israel's history. He created prosperity and wealth for the nation of Israel like no other, and he himself was very prosperous and very wealthy. In fact, in today's world, he would be a multi-billionaire. He would be like the combination of the popularity of a Hollywood movie star. He would be the wealth of a multi-billionaire business tycoon. Uh, He would be the pleasure and pursuit of pleasure, like a modern-day playboy, if you will. This guy had it all. And if it was out there, he did it. I mean, if it was drink, he drank it. If it was party, he partied it. If it was experiences, he had it. If it was wealth... He had it. He had the wealth, he had the land, he had the cattle, he had all the servants, he had anything, Ecclesiastes tells us, anything his heart desired, he got it. He tried it. So for some of you younger folks in the room, older folks in the room would probably would realize this at some point. Not that God is against our blessing or that we can't pursue our purpose and God gives us life and adventure and enjoyment and all to his glory, but what you learn really quick is this thought, I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when I get to that number, when I get this experience, when I get the house, when I get the kid, when I get the dog when I get the other house, when I get the lake house, when I get to that career place, when I get the title, when I get to that, Solomon wrecks that understanding. When my 401k gets to this, which is really making us unhappy right now. (laughs) If you put your hope and your happiness in those things, Solomon, he shatters that. He tried it all. Women. I mean, he had, I don't know, it's just 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a different message. I don't have time to go into all that, okay? I'm trying to take care of one. Ecclesiastes 1.2, after all that backdrop of his life, he says these words, meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless." You say, I don't really get the understanding of the word meaningless. Well, really, Hebrew words are a picture. It's better if you get this picture. It's the word habel. And the word habel, the picture of it is that there is a bucket in a well that has water, good water, in this time period. Then water was a big deal, and so it's this word and this picture together of this bucket seeking after this water that can satisfy going down into the well, being drawn up, and every time it's drawn up continually, the bucket is empty. Over and over, it is used. 36 times in 12 chapters, Ecclesiastes says that if that's what you're putting your happiness in, you'll keep sending the bucket down, but it can't deliver what you're looking for in your soul. He says to us kind of a theme and thesis of the book, He says to us in Ecclesiastes 3.10, I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also said eternity in the human heart. So there's this longing in the human heart for this eternal understanding of life. He says this, He said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for the people that God better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their work so the work can't produce the satisfaction, the wealth, the eat, the drink can't produce it. Look what he says to us, and this is a theme of life. This is a gift of God. That you realize the satisfaction of the human soul is to understand this eternal God who's created us and made us, and that it's our understanding of Him and His ways. And when we begin to submit our desires to His, there's a gift that He gives us. So what most American people, read the reason most of them, a third of them say, I'm not happy, is they don't understand the gift. They don't understand the gift that ultimately needs to be viewed through the person of Jesus Christ. I believe this, true happiness is more than an elusive feeling. And I always love when you read the Old Testament, by the way. I'm just helping you with your Bible reading. It's good to read the Old Testament through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is a a type and a shadow through the lens to be understood of the way Jesus lived his life. So I made this little statement here and wrote this little thought. Solomon was a king who experienced every, every pleasure his eyes desired, yet lived empty. Jesus is a king Who emptied himself yet lived full. So, if you're wanting a starting place, you start with this person, Jesus Christ, who loves you. He accepts you just like you are. He lived a life that you could never live so that you could have a life that you could never earn. And when you receive him into your life, he accepts you like you are, you don't earn your way to him when you accept him he comes in he starts rearranging things in your soul and freeing you from all the things that are really causing much of the discontent and the hurt and the pain and the things in our lives and what happens is you start building a relationship with him that changes your perspective on life in general you know and it and it's not something that you again graduate from because the longer you live life this is this is it can provide hope, but it's also very true. The longer you live life, the more pain you experience. The more challenges. It's just the truth. October the 29th, since I wrote the book, October the 29th, I lost someone very dear to me. My father, who was my hero. He, he taught me who I am today is because of his integrity and what he taught me about life. He's one of the wisest men I've ever known. He, he prayed for wisdom for me. He taught me to read Proverbs when I was a young guy. Um, He he was a man of integrity. His favorite phrase was, the Word says. My love for the Word comes from my father who always pointed me back to the Word. By the way, young families in here, you better set this up as the authority at your house. Because I've raised teenagers. When they become teenagers, they get opinions. (laughs) We appreciate your opinion, but we care more about God's opinion. Okay? My dad's favorite phrase, the word says. He never trended on Twitter. (laughs) He was old school. He's my hero, and he passed away on October the 29th. Your pastor and his wife were there, and several of my friends, and I got a chance to honor him one more time at his funeral. And since then, it's really pretty fresh, you know? You say, how do you deal with that when you lose somebody? Maybe you've lost a dad or a mom or someone maybe even closer than that. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've gone through some pain, and you're like, "You're talking about happiness? Doesn't that kind of sound like kind of trite? Like, how do you how do you deal with grief?" You know. And so it, it'll it it, it it to be honest, it's kind of fresh. It'll come to me in waves sometimes. You know, like when you want to call your dad when you have a good experience. That's what sons do. Something that you you know conquer. You catch a big fish. You do that. And so I'll, I'll 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 even pick up the phone and think I'm going to call him and forget that he's not there. You say, how do you deal with it, Pastor? something I want to impart to you. There's a way to see God and a way to live life that doesn't exempt you from the pain, but it gives you hope and peace and joy and deeper contentment in the midst of it. See, I have a history with God. So when my world starts getting shaken, I know where to go back to for that firm foundation. I want to share with you a few of those things. How do we experience Jesus' kind of happiness? Number one, we need to acknowledge the influence that happiness has on our identity. See, when you feel content, and when you sense that deeper anchoring, then you actually believe life is better than it is. And you believe you're better than you probably are. But when you don't have that, life has a way of a, there's an eluding kind of factor to where you think you're worse than you are. And again, we're not, we haven't been good at this as well within church and preaching on this. We are emotional beings. We are feeling based beings. If I were to start talking to you and look back at some of the bad choices that you've made, I would tell you it's not always because the logical best decision was not presented. The truth is, you made the decision based on a set of feelings that led you to that decision, not necessarily this is what's true or this is what's right. And that's why when Jesus comes into our life, He saves us and in our spirit, man, because we are spirit, soul, and body, we are spiritual beings and emotional beings having a physical existence. He saves us, we become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, but He begins to work on our mind, our will, emotions, and heal us in that emotional realm. And so you have to understand that this is affected. I talked with a 21-year-old girl the other day. You call it next steps, we call it 101. And I'll never forget, she was the last one in line, and I was wait- she was waiting at the very end. She was emotional. She said, when I come to church, I feel different. I have something. She's new to new to all this. None of her family saved. And she said, I feel different. She's emotional. I said, Well, just tell me a little bit about what's going on in your life. She'd been through all kinds of things. It was just-you never know what people are going through. The person sitting beside you. She's like, I've had three job transitions. My parents are not believers. They're not really even happy with me being in church today. I've had a challenge, an engagement that was broke off. I mean, it was just like, I just had so much compassion for her. She had a friend who died, and she just said, I've had a lot of pain and a lot of stuff going on. And I just looked her in the eyes. I said, I'm proud of you. She started crying more. I'm proud of you for coming to church today in a new city by yourself. And then I began to explain to her something. What you're sensing, it's not just a feeling What you're sensing is the God who created you, who knows you, who set eternity in your heart. You're developing a relationship with Him. And He's the one bringing that peace into your life. And I'm proud of you today. With no support from your family, in a new city with all of those challenges that you could project on God, you came to church today. And what I began to talk to her about is God inhabits the praises of His people, so when you show up in the midst, God is present everywhere, but He He is present in a different way among His people as they worship Him. When you hear the Word of God preached, then that's changing your mindset about life. There's a lot of practical factors from the Word of God that's changing your emotional state. We need to be honest about the fact that our happiness and our emotional state influences how we see ourselves and our identity before God. Here's the second. We've got to be willing to confront it. I, I, I hate, I, my, my goal in life is to see people win in their walk with Jesus, to see people equipped. And I find a lot of people are not equipped. So you have a problem, you have a challenge, and so we don't know how to confront it. We don't know how to deal with it. And so what happens is the enemy just begins to take over and we become an emotional basket case. And again, I've pastored for 25 years. I work with people every single day. I know there can be chemical things, there can be medical things, and so I'm not trying to be insensitive. But by and large, a big portion of the body of Christ have not realized, again, we are fighting a spiritual battle. There's a real enemy. And we have to learn how to confront that. I can wake up sometimes, have a little melancholic disposition. I can have grief related to my day. I have something. So what do you do? Well, when I coach my son in football, if I wasn't a pastor, I'd have probably been a football coach. I played football in Northeast Texas, and and I loved... My son played all the way through high school, and I coached in our area, and we dominated. But anyway, that's a different deal. Um, And so the game, for those of you that did not play football or don't understand football... Everyone who makes the headlines are the guys who make the touchdowns, but no one makes a touchdown unless the guys like me, who never got to touch the ball, block on the front line. Okay, Those are the people that don't get any awards, but they're, if you don't win it up front, you don't win the game. So my guys, when they were out on the field, where's it won at? Oh, in the trenches, coach! We were going to win the game right up there at the front by winning that line of scrimmage. Well let me tell you where the trenches are in your life to unhappiness, depression, melancholic disposition, discouragement. It's right here. That affects right here. You have to submit your self-talk to the truth of God's word. If we spent I'm on metal for a minute. If we spent half as much time with this right here on our lips as we do with this right here in our eyes. We'd be conquering the devil. It sits by our bed it's our alarm. We pick it up. We wake up. First thing, oh my gosh, coronavirus. Oh my gosh, everybody's doing it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, uh, uh. In our first 15 minutes, we're just ah filled with fear, filled with anxiety, filled with depression. Oh, what's she doing? Oh, she lost 15 pounds. Oh my God, where are they vacationing? Ooh. I'm going to tell you, you got to get this sword of the spirit this old school, the word says, I put it on the back of my phone. I put it on the dash of my car. I listen to it when I'm working out. Why? Because the word of God will cut through what's going on in your soul. Right, right. Right. We've got to learn how to confront it. You've got to confront that offense. You've got to confront that unmet expectation. You've got to confront, see, a lot of us think it's that which is happening on the outside the weird person at work, the crazy neighbor your mother-in-law, your aunt, the person driving in the slow lane that are very much messing with my happiness in Dallas-Fort Worth. They're driving slow in the fast lane. This is for passing. Get out of my way. It's not out there. It's in here and in here. Number three, focus on the practical choices that produce Jesus' kind of happiness. Did you know you can make a choice? You can make a choice. There's a choice available to you. Again, many years, I'm just offering to you what I've learned in my own life, what I've learned from the Word of God, what I've learned from working with people. I think when Solomon ends this book, Ecclesiastes, he agrees with this statement. Go read it. And that's this. The most miserable, unhappy, discontent people that I know are those that make life about themselves. The most discontent people. It has nothing to do with income level. It has nothing to do with status. It has nothing to do with pleasures. It has nothing to do with that. Varying degrees. It's the people who make it about themselves are the most discontent. The happiest people you will ever meet are the people who have made the choice to make it about God and others. It's really that simple. You say, can you give me a little more practical help? Well, first of all, stop complaining and blaming our unhappiness on someone else. You know, complaint can just get on you. Murmuring and complaining and criticism. And realize, no one else affects what God wants to do with you. Steward your own heart. Steward your own world. Be faithful with the little, and God will bless you and give you more if you stop focusing on everyone else. Make gratitude part of our daily routine. The Bible says, in everything, give thanks. In everything, your peace is tied to your gratitude, your contentment is tied to your thankfulness. So, when you begin to change the narrative in your spirit, in your heart, with thankfulness, with gratitude, it's amazing. And it's even science is coming, science is catching up to the Bible. That they begin to study the serotonin and the release of things and stuff in the chemicals in the brain changed by speaking thanks. My mom was an intercessory prayer person. Every morning I woke up, there she was with prayer, writing in her journal, praying for us. How many of y'all are thankful for the moms and grandmas that prayed us into the kingdom of God? Are y'all with me? And my mom was just weird. She'd wake me up, you know. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord had. You know, I'm a teenage boy. You know, I'm just mad at the world. There's just like, there's chemicals flowing through my body. And I'm laying there, you know, turn on the light. Don't turn on the light. This is the day. I thank you for just bad attitude. I thank you for his bad spirit right now that you're going to change that. I'm like, get out of my room. Get away from me. You know, my mom, who I thought was weird, my dad, who I thought was weird, the word says, and my mom thanking God for everything. We run out of gas. I thank you right now. You're filling the tank. You know, I'm like, Mom, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> She's a godly, happy woman who's walked through a lot of pain in life. She has a contentment. Why? Because she recognized something from Scripture in everything, yeah. not for everything, in everything. Give thanks. Choose to generously serve and bless others without expectation of return. That's where we get in trouble. Did you know as you become an outflow person, God blesses you, but you know what the the challenge is is we're always expecting that person's reaction to be what we want it to be. Leave the expectations away. Surround ourselves with people who share these values. Did you know you will become the sum total of the people you hang around? you will be those people. You're like, if you want the marriage, if you want the, you want the walk with God, if you want the lifestyle, if you want their happiness, keep hanging out with those people. You're like, oh, I'm different. No, you're not. You will become who you hang around in the books you read. That's why the Bible says, bad company, we used to make our kids quote it, bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character so you want to hang around people that understand those things and did you know it's kind of caught more than it is taught i want to tell you this final story because i'm out of time i want contentment fulfillment can't promise you you're not going to have pain i'm real eternally minded these days i've kind of become dangerous to the devil because the older you get more people you love are on the other side of this world can't promise you you're not going to have circumstances, job challenges, kid issues and things, but I can tell you in the midst of it, you can have peace and contentment and fulfillment. You can change your perspective on happiness. My wife and I a few years ago walked through this with, the, with our youngest there, Lainey Kate. Her name means bright light and uh, she's a bright light in our house, but she had an elbow that stopped working. It just... It just basically just stopped working. We went to the doctor. They thought it was broke. They put it in a cast. They thought it had some kind of fracture. That only accentuated the problem. And through a series of meetings with doctors, they sent us to the main orthopedic hospital in Dallas that's one of the renowned places around the world. And when we got there, we're still a little bit kind of naive to what's going on. We go up to the check-in desk, and I notice on the paper the word arthritis. I start getting afraid we went into the exam room talked with them and she had a, a classic case of and, and it's, it's an acute uh, case of, of juvenile idiopathic arthritis and they start doing all the tests and they share that with us and it's not what I wanted to hear I, my wife was a little better in the exam room I wasn't I was a mess um, just thinking about what's going to go on and I had to step outside and cry a few times you know there's no pain like kid pain there's no pain like kid pain you know, you see the Father's heart because, you know, you just don't want your kids to have to have challenges. I have such a compassion. I've ministered to so many people in our church who have kids with health issues. And um, that set us on a track of treatment. Thank God that there is treatment. Many years ago, the kids with my daughter's condition ended up crippled. and uh, But yet the treatment was challenging. She had to take what's called methotrexate, which was discovered through cancer treatment. And... We'd give her a shot every Friday and for 24 hours she would throw up. She's now on a new protocol that's been better. But I'll never forget what she taught me. Let me let you, you learned a little bit from my dad. Let me share with you something that my, my little kid taught me. We were, that night we didn't get a lot of sleep. We were crying and just really, just really struggling with this new thing that we didn't want for our daughter. Woke up that morning and came and she was coming down the stairs and, I saw her coming down, and I was really messed up, you know, but I wanted to see how she was doing. So, Kate, how you doing? She came down right. She's looking down at me, coming down the stairs, and she said, Dad, I haven't lost my joy. In that moment, she imparted something to me. And how I can get unhappy when a project doesn't go my way. I can get unhappy when I don't get to some place fast enough or some circumstance or situation. And that's why the Bible says out of the mouth of babes. Out of my little daughter now with this condition, should God not heal her, she has to live with the rest of her life. She in the simplistic understanding of God and who He is said, I haven't lost my joy.